You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Every culture has its own false gods, and I don't think it'll be controversial if I say that one of ours is productivity. Right back to Benjamin Franklin, Americans have always been an on-the-clock people, obsessed with not wasting a second of our lives, and assuming, of course, that time is wasted if it's not put to use in work. The internet age has made things even worse. Many of us feel that we're on the clock, or at least on call, 24 hours per day. What does this culture of productivity do to the life of the mind and the life of the spirit? Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is John Kessler, chair of the Pastoral Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute. His latest book, The Radical Pursuit of Rest, teaches us how to resist the lure of productivity and approach the biblical ideal of rest. That book is out now from InterVarsity Press, and I'm delighted that it's brought him to Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for coming on the show, John. I'm happy to be here, Michael. Well, you begin your book with the dialectical terms work and rest, and then you suggest that our culture has really radically misunderstood the relationship between them. So what does work have to do with rest? Well, I think the way that we normally think about it is that, first of all, that rest serves work, that the reason that we rest is so that we can work, and and then a corollary, I think, for many people today is that we earn rest through work, you know, so if we worked enough, then it's okay for us to rest, but in, in either case, rest is not seen as an end in itself. In fact, that, that seems really wrong to us when really I think uh, the biblical perspective on rest is rest is our destination. Rest is our ultimate destination, and it really is an end in itself. It doesn't need, it doesn't need to serve work. And in fact, when you reverse the order, uh, then work becomes dysfunctional and it nullifies rest. And there's also a misunderstanding, if I'm if I'm reading you correctly, about what rest even is, because a lot of our rest tends to look like work light. Yes, well, you know, I think that you can see this on several levels. First of all, it, maybe you you've had this experience when somebody comes back from a vacation and you ask them, you know, how was it, and they'll say, oh, I need a vacation from my vacation. I need a vacation to rest up from my vacation. Right. Uh, so that, uh, you know, on the one hand, our whole notion of what what rest is, it's not, you know, it's, not, it's recreation, not recreation, but this sense of, um, you know, we, we just have to be extremely busy. We have to be, we have to be doing great things. Uh, and and then also, I think for for many of us, what we do when we are supposed to be resting, it really isn't that much different than what we do when we're working. I know I find this in my own life that often my rest is really just uh, you know a, a larger space where I can do my regular work. So we don't we end up not resting at all. You think about like the experience of going to a theme park. Which which you write you walk you know yeah. <laughs> you walk five miles a day and and yeah. if you're gonna if you're gonna do it and not wait in line you've got to make out an incredible schedule right. and uh, it's it's, okay, not it's ironic you should say that you know because uh, we're my wife and I are planning a trip to Disney World right? so uh, prepare to not be at all rested right we, we bought the book you know and that's exactly it it's uh, you know, it, it, it's inc- it's actually stressful. You can see it. You can you can especially see it on the children's faces. You know, there's this this intensity. There's all of this all of this effort for this. You know, maybe what uh, you know, three minute, may, maybe not even that intense experience. And uh, yeah, I think that's very common. That's sort of our the, the whole culture of recreation today. I love Splash Mountain, though, so I don't want to... Yeah, I hate Splash Mountain. You know, I hate anything that moves like that. Uh, Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, well, I I don't want to go there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I could talk about that all day. Uh, But, I mean, the the thing is, there's something fun about planning for vacations like that, but I think that maybe that we... That may be just a symptom of how far our conception of rest has decayed, you know? Yeah, and I think it, also I think it's important to to recognize that really what what I'm talking about in the radical pursuit of rest is it, it's not I'm not really just talking about um, and maybe not even primarily talking about like how you spend your free time or 
or you know what you should do on your vacation. I'm really talking about a spiritual concept that originates with God. That there there is, you know, there there is the reality of physical rest, which everybody needs. That's the way that we were designed. But there's also another kind of rest. Jesus' invitation into rest talks about rest for the soul, and that is rest on a whole different order. And it really begins with God, because God is the first one in Scripture to rest, which is astonishing when you consider who we're talking about. You know, God who never, God who created all things, God who never sleeps or slumbers, God who never grows weary, never becomes tired, is the first one to rest. And all rest, all the rest that we experience in the spiritual realm is derived from that rest. Yeah, let's talk about what that rest looks like. Um, you, you you talk about the paradox that that God doesn't slumber or sleep, that he doesn't need rest, he doesn't need to be rejuvenated the way human beings do. And yet, very famously, in, in Genesis, he rests uh, on the seventh day from his labor the other six days. How should we understand that divine rest? Well, the temptation is to look at it as if it were, uh, you know, almost kind of a mythical picture of God on the one hand, that it's, you know, yeah, this is the way the ancients viewed God. The, the gods, you know, they, they were sort of humans on steroids, and that's never the picture of God that you find in the scriptures. So when the scripture says that God rests, it can't mean that it can't mean that he wore himself out in the previous six days of creation and and now he needs to refresh himself and restore himself because he's depleted his energy. So something else has to be going on. At the same time, because I believe that uh, I believe that the scriptures are inspired and inerrant and that they mean what they say. When it says that God rested, he it means what it said, that that really took place. So I think it's been, one of the ways we understand that statement is that the rest that God experienced is the rest of completion, that it says that he finished all of his work. Everything that God intended, in, he, everything that he purposed, everything that we now are experiencing in real time, all of that work was completed uh, even before creation, Jesus is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So that everything that everything that is being worked out in my life today, everything that I'm experiencing grows out of this finished work of God. So that the rest of God, it isn't some kind of um, you know humanized experience. It's not. It's not even sort of God setting a good example the way a parent might pretend to sleep when they when he or she is trying to encourage their child to take a nap. It is this uh, this completion of all that God intends and that that all of our work then grows out of this finished work that God has already done. It can be hard though because because I don't know about you but I feel like my work is never completed. Yeah. There's always something else to do. Well, you know, that's one of the, of course, one of the differences is that in my life, you know, I'm experiencing, I'm experiencing time in a linear fashion, right? Everything, I can only experience it one thing after another. And uh, I, it does, I do have things in front of me that I have to accomplish. I have things, you know, in the past, things behind me that I've tried to accomplish, but what the Bible says about the works that I am accomplishing, two things about them. One, the works that I do are done, they're not done in my own strength. They're done through the strength of Christ. And secondly, the way Ephesians describes it, the things that I'm doing are the things that God has prepared beforehand that I should do. So um, so there, there is a sense where we're not talking about that a sense where there's no energy that's expended by us that there's there's really nothing for us to do there's there's really a great deal for us to do and in fact when you think about God in rest uh, Jesus says of the Father my Father is always at his work 
Jesus says that when he is being uh, challenged by the religious leaders about his practice on the Sabbath. It's his defense for healing on the Sabbath. His implication is that the father who this rest described in Genesis, the father who rests is still at rest, that uh, he is in this, he is currently in this Sabbath mode, and he is always at work, that this rest does not preclude action on God's, God's part, and it doesn't preclude action on our part, so that what we do, the things that we do, we're doing out of rest. We're not in, we're doing them into rest, we're doing them out of rest. Well, the other biblical passage, I think, that probably comes to our listeners' minds is Matthew 11, where Christ says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We may think we understand what Christ means, uh, but as you point out in your book, that word yoke is pretty confusing. So what is he saying here? Well, it is this, it is a startling promise when you consider that what a yoke served to, uh, for in Jesus' day. You know, a yoke was an implement that was placed over a beast of burden. So, <clears throat> so is Jesus is Jesus saying to us, um, "I want you to be my beast of burden." <laughs> you know, who wants a yoke? Nobody wants a yoke. The, first of all, the implication of the promise is that is that we are already bearing a yoke and that the yoke that Jesus offers us is radically different from the yoke that we already experience. Um, Jesus, of course, as a carpenter, would have been well familiar with the yoke. Maybe, you know, perhaps he, he made them in his day. He was, Jesus was a workman. He was a wanderer, so he understood weariness. It was Jesus who you know, who, uh, being weary, sat down by the well in Samaria. But I, I think that uh, this, this image of the yoke really is telling us that when we enter into rest, we enter into a, a kind of empowerment by Christ. In most cases, this is another interesting thing about the image of the yoke. In most contexts in Scripture, the yoke is a negative thing. You know, a yoke is described, the scriptures describe the yoke of slavery. That's how uh, the Bible describes Israel's experience in Egypt. So there is a kind of a bond um, implied in the yoke. There is, a, there is a servitude implied by the yoke. And again, Jesus' point is we are already slaves. We're going to be slaves either way. We're either going to be slaves to Christ whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light and uh, for whom servitude for whom is the promise of rest, or we're going to be a, a slave to somebody else. You know, we're going to be a slave to sin. We're going to be a slave to ourselves. We're going to be a slave to our appetites. So Christ is really inviting us to exchange one yoke for the other that, so that when we come to Christ, when we take on the um, when we take on that new identity as a slave of Christ, we also enter into rest. <clears throat> well, it's easy enough for us to see an overemphasis on work in the corporate world, or even in academia. I don't know about you; I regularly work ten or twelve hour days. Yeah, but <laughs> but one of the central arguments of your book is that this this productivity trap, as your subtitle puts it, is, is just as present in the ecclesial world. What are churches doing wrong when it comes to work and rest? Well, I think that what you find in the average church today is you find this culture of drivenness. Um, and I think it grows out of several factors. One factor is this underlying assumption about our relationship with God and about the nature of the Christian life. And it's this assumption that in the Christian life, busier is better. And it's based on this uh, equation of devotion with activity. So the thinking goes that the more that we love Christ, the more we're going to do for him. So those who love Christ the most, whether it's churches or whether it's individuals, they're going to be the ones who do the most. Of course, this is a trap when you think about it, because since our devotion to Christ shouldn't have any bounds to it, 
then neither should our activities. So no matter what we're doing now, then we're going to need to do more. No matter what we've done in the past, that's not going to be enough. So you have this this frenetic, uh, you know, this frenetic pressure to continually, you know, up the ante in terms of what we're doing. When you combine that with the church's culture of marketing, that, you know, really, if you think about what churches are doing, even though we use the language of missionality, what we're really doing is marketing ourselves. We're in competition, not just with, um, not just with the, you know, in the marketplace of ideas and with the other, you know, other ideologies. Quite honestly, most churches are in competition with other churches, and so that the model we have adopted for ourselves is sort of this service industry where every worshiper is an employee, you know, and the and we're we are selling a product basically, and it's not even really the gospel. It is. It is really the environment of the church. It is the experience of the church. And so, uh, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to draw more and more people into this experience so that they will stay. As a result of that, number one, there's tremendous pressure for churches to provide um, you know, more and more programming, uh, a, a larger and larger experience, and in order to make that work, then it's really not enough for, um, in, in the eyes, I think, of many church leaders, it's not enough for worshipers to come and worship. In fact, it's, I think we've completely flipped the whole, the whole uh, idea of worship so that instead of corporate worship being one of the primary reasons that God's people come together and being uh, the... Uh, you know, the ultimate in our experience, corporate worship is now being presented as sort of the uh, first base uh, and and maybe the lowest level of devotion. So you'll hear, you know, you'll hear church leaders, pastors often will say to people, if you just came here to worship, they'll start with that sort of disclaimer. And and the, the implication is, if you're only here to worship, that's not good enough. You need to be here. You need to be doing something else in order to justify your presence. You need to be involved in a small group. You need to be working in the nursery. You so that I get this. I really get this sense that uh, number one, uh, God is not satisfied with my worship in itself. I have to produce something in order for my worship to be acceptable. And ultimately, I think this whole mentality really pushes God off to the margin so that even worship is not even really about God. It's just a tool that we use uh, to, it's a marketing tool that we use to attract people to the church. And uh, you, you also talk about the, the astounding busyness of the, uh, of the service itself, the, the, the stand up, sit down, the, yeah. the, the rock music, the, the, yeah. the kind of never ending buzz. Well, it's not really just, service. yeah, I, you know, people, I guess people could just say, I'm just griping about, you know, worship style. And I, no, and you I throw it at the hymns worship. too. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, it, I, think, I do think it sort of reflects itself in a in kind of different ways with different worship cultures. The, the one that probably most of us are familiar with these days is this sort of, um, you know, this, this very busy, uh, you know, you, I don't, for some reason, you know, you have to stand through the whole song service and, you know, it has to be a full body activity and you got to, got to fan out and, and, you know, I mean, there's, there's just this general sense of, 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 uh, again, frenetic is the word that comes to my mind when I think of the experience along with this, this sort of nagging, um, from the pastor or the worship leader, you know, to, to get busy. Don't just sit there, do something. In other cultures, in, in other, you know, I think a more traditional worship culture, it's a little different. Maybe the service, service is maybe quieter. Maybe you don't, you're not standing as much. But there's tremendous pressure to, you have to be there at every service. You, and, and also there's the same pressure. You know, you have to be doing something in order to justify your presence. 
And I, I want to make clear, you know, I understand that when Christ calls me to himself, part of what he's calling me to is service. That's, I think that is implied in the promise of the yoke. But this culture of, of a busy church where, you know, busyness is a mark of grace and we're really, we're really not doing this honestly. I don't think we're doing it missionally. We're, we're doing it for the sake of marketing. I, I think that that creates a different kind of experience of service that does not reflect the easy yoke of Christ. I mean, your, your book intertwines the concept of rest with the concepts of grace, salvation, redemption, and sanctification. What does that cluster of terms have in common with one another? Well, I think ultimately, that for me, that is what the promise of rest is synonymous with the promise of grace. And if I understand it, then grace is the foundational uh, uh, theme of all the Christian life. And everything then that uh, grace leads to redemption, this redemptive experience that I have as a result of something that somebody else has done for me. I didn't, it's not something that I created for myself. It's not something that I worked myself into. It comes to me as a gift from Christ. Everything then that is, that fills up the Christian life, the transformation of my heart, the service that I offer to Christ, the, you know, the, even the missional experience when I'm, when I'm actually trying to live out this life of obedience, all of that um, flows out of this gift that Christ has given me, both uh, the, the gift of righteousness, which then results in a transforming work of the Holy Spirit, which is also, it, although it's, there's an active dimension to it, you know, I'm participating with that, that flows out of gift. It's not something. It's not like well, Jesus. Jesus went halfway for me, and now he's just sitting there with you know he's he's standing there with his arms folded, tapping his toes, waiting for me to take up my half. He's you know, Jesus paid it all, but now he's waiting for me to pay him back. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing that I can add to what Jesus has done, and everything that's happening in my life now, the service that I render him, even the busyness that I engage in, in his name. He's the one who empowers me to do that. His spirit is the one who has equipped me to serve him. And hopefully the energy that I have to serve him with is energy that's derived from his spirit. There's also the sense that I don't have to do everything right now that the world is going to go on even if i even if i don't get everything done yes i think um you know this this is one of the uh this is one of the lessons that we learn from some of the ancient practices that teach us about rest solitude and silence and it's um you know it is part of this frenetic culture that we're in that we believe this lie that everything depends on us. I, I think that also, I think that's also the lie that fuels the culture of busy work that shapes so much of church activity. You know, this assumption that if, you know what, if I don't, if I don't take hold of this, if I don't deal with this, then it will never be done. There's a kind of, um, you know, there's a kind of lack of trust often reflected in that. And one of the things that we learn by practicing some of these ancient disciplines associated with rest, the disciplines of solitude and silence, for example, or even the more the more fundamental uh, daily discipline of sleep, actually, if you think about what's happening when I go to sleep, you know, I the psalmist has a kind of theology of sleep. I, you know, I lay down, I close my eyes, and I basically check out of the world. And while I do that, I'm trusting that the world is going to go on just fine without me. 
that that God is the one who sustains me, and He's going to take care of things when I am basically incapacitated. That's the same principle when we practice the disciplines of solitude and silence, that we are intentionally removing ourselves from the normal activity of life. We do it, first of all, because we we want to uh, intentionally uh, acquaint ourselves, uh, reconnect with uh, our sense of God's presence. But one of the lessons that we learn from that is that, you know what? God really can handle things without us, that we really can rest in his power and his strength. And that gives me uh, uh, the confidence that when I am engaged, you know, I, I don't have to be controlling in the way that I live out my Christian life. Well, you, you, you brought up those twin disciplines of solitude and silence. Both of those are deeply threatened in the 21st century by this digital buzz that's constantly around us. How, how can we cultivate those disciplines in this world we live in, this world of constant connection and noise? You know, it's, I, it's always been a challenge. You, the, the, in the Bible, you find that in, in the Gospels, it talks about Jesus separating himself from the crowd. You know, the crowd comes to try to um, make him a king by force, and he goes off. And, and Jesus' common practice was to go away by himself to uh, spend time in prayer. So it isn't a new thing. It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, we're the, we're the first generation to, to have to deal with distractions. We're the first generation to have to worry about the, the press of the crowd distracting us from our relationship with Christ. But we probably are the, we're not the first generation to deal with that problem, but we probably are the first generation to take the crowd in, along with us in our pocket. You know, that's, right. you know, that's the thing that really makes it a challenge for us is that, uh, that it, the, the crowd really just has to click a button in order to enter into my presence. And in fact, I invite it. It's not only do I invite it, we are so connected today that many of us, most of us perhaps feel anxious when we are disconnected. I mean, really, you know, one of the, the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I check my email and the last thing I do at night before I go to bed is check my email. And I'm not sure that those things are really good. When I wake up in the middle of the night, you know, that's, that's my, honestly, that's my first instinct is, you know, to lean over and see, you know, what, what's going on there. So that part of that, just in terms of the cultural dynamic that that creates, one of the things that it creates is this, this expectation that we will be always available to everybody. Uh, that others feel that, so that when you send an email, there's a sense of uh, of uh, impatience. You know, if somebody, I mean, I, I will, I, I find that I do this all the time. I'll send an email, and then I'll just sit there and watch the screen because my sense is, okay, they're going to get right back to me. And if, of course, <laughs> if they don't, then we feel, if we feel maybe a little bit irritated. And then on, on our own part, we have this. Um, sense of obligation. So often employers now uh, feel that their employees are completely accessible to them 24 hours a day. So you're, you're doing work when, and at another time period, you never would have been doing work. And not only is it considered normal, it's, it's considered expected of you. Well, that, that is a very difficult culture to find quiet space in. And, and it won't happen. And this probably has always been true that it doesn't happen without some intentionality. But I think, you know, you'll also find that you, you have to take extra steps. You have to turn it off, you know, turn off the phone, turn off the computer. Uh, but you also have to deal with this added sense of anxiety when you do that. It takes longer, I think, for the background noise, that ordinary background noise that we deal with when we find ourselves in solitude and silence to subside. And because, um, because we often use this environment, this you know, environment of noise and the, 
the digital crowd that we take with us, we often use that pretty much as a distraction so that we don't have to either deal with ourselves or we don't have to deal with God. You know, sometimes we use all of that as a wall so that we don't really have to be alone in the presence of God. When we do find ourselves either uh, becoming more aware of the reality of God's presence or becoming more, well, uh, be, more, becoming more aware of ourselves, that is an unnerving experience. Uh, you know, and, the, and the, my, my knee-jerk reaction when I'm in that space, when I'm feeling either myself pressing in or feeling God pressing in, is, you know, I want to just turn up the volume. I want to turn on the phone. I want to, you know, I'm just going to check Facebook just to see what's happening. Right. <laughs> or, Right. I, uh, you know, I go on these, these semi-regular trips to a monastery where I, I sit yeah. and write and go to their services. And I, when I go up there, I have to delete Facebook and Twitter off of yeah. my phone because otherwise I just know I'll be on it the whole time. And even then, every time I pick up the phone, I, I try to click on it. And yeah, that's right. And you know, uh, there are actually there's actually some uh, some science that is um, suggesting that this you know this is actually changing our brain chemistry that we are because we are so wired. And I think the you know of course the, the danger in talking like this is particularly for digital natives. You know. Is, they sort of interpret it as, well, that's just grumbling of the old folks. You know, they, right. they don't, you know, they're just, they're, they're still waiting for somebody to come and show them how to set up their VCR. You know, the, <laughs> digital culture is not going to go away. Right. And, we're, you know, we are, we're deeply embedded in it. And in some cases, some, you know, our lives depend on it. So I'm really not, I'm not arguing for, you know, a Luddite mentality that throws these things out. But I, I am saying that perhaps we ought to step back and evaluate how this immersion in digital digital, digital culture is um, altering the way that we live. How is it shaping the way we think about ourselves? How is it how is it redefining our whole notion of relationships and community? You know, um, I mean, how many times have you seen this where you'll have a group of people? in the same room, maybe even sitting at the same table or on the same couch, and instead of talking to each other, they're texting each other. It's, it's actually altering the way that we connect, the way that we connect or don't connect with each other, and the way that we connect with God. And I'm sure you have the same problem I do, which is the, the students do that in class too. Oh yeah, and you're well, standing I, at the front telling them something that you think is like vitally important to their existence as human beings, and they're. It's really yeah, it's really hard. I in fact I was just I was observing a one of the things I do in my jobs I have to observe a faculty in my department. So I was sitting in the back of the room, and I was I just glanced at all of the you know all of what's on the computer screens with the students in front of me, and so. And while the teacher's lecturing here, you know, one student's got Facebook up, another student has a book up that I'm pretty sure was for another class, you know, that they were reading. And so, you know, we call it we call it multitasking. Actually, I think it's a it's a it's a form of rudeness, and it is really it's almost you know, as a teacher, I'm I'm not sure what I can do about it. But some some of my colleagues just completely shut it down. They won't let students use. Uh, computers or their f- phones, and, I, and maybe that's what I should go to. But then I, there's the uh, the naive part of me that's saying, well, you know, some of them are actually taking notes, so it's easier for them to take notes with that. Although the studies say you you take better notes by hand than you do on a computer because yes. you can't mm-hmm. possibly write everything. Yeah. Also, yeah. I don't know what your faculty meetings look like, but uh, <laughs> in hours, well, that's right. It's the same yeah. problem. Guilt and you know guilty as charged. Me too. No, no, you had to go there, didn't you? <laughs> I mean, that's right. It it is a um, and we can. I mean, I'm joking about it, but I do think there is a. I mean, I'm not joking. I I, I actually do do that. I'll confess it. But 
it seems kind of humorous when we talk about it, but it does, I think there's a more serious implication that it creates a general culture of disengagement so that um, when we're having a conversation, I mean, we, we normally have trouble in conversation. You know, this, this actually relates to the whole discipline of silence that normally in conversation, when I look like I'm being silent, I'm actually not being silent. I'm formulating my response to whatever it is you're saying. I'm, I'm waiting for you to stop talking so that I can tell you what I have been saying in my mind while you were talking instead of engaging in focused listening, which is actually one of the that's one of the benefits of practicing discipline of both solitude and silence, that it creates a context where you can practice focused listening. Now, now we're not just struggling with that as individuals. Now we are, you know, massively as a, as a group, as a culture, as a whole, we are, um, I think, training ourselves to be, at best to be detached listeners or actually we're just giving the appearance of listening when we're really having an entirely different conversation with somebody else about something else. Probably not paying that much attention to them either. No. And we, and, and I mean, like I totally get it. You know, I, I mean, I understand it. You know, because you mentioned faculty meetings, you know, I'm, I, I am in a lot of meetings. And the reason I do it is is because I'm not interested. You know, I don't really care about what's being talked about. As if, you know, as if, uh, as if caring were um, some kind of, uh, you know, as if caring were not something intentional that, you know, I just automatically ought to care. The reality is that in whenever it comes to conversation, caring is always intentional. It it always is an act of focused attention. It's something that I bring to the conversation when I'm listening to somebody. And so, um, you know, I think that is part of the unintended consequence of uh, when when a you know, when a new technology enters into the culture, we get great benefit from it. But there are all of these side side effects. You know, Neil, Neil Postman talks about that. You know, all of these unintended consequences. And they, they bring with them a kind of an ethos that we don't even think about. So that now we're in a place where detached listening or just frank not listening is acceptable. It's normative. It's what we all do. So, um, you know, maybe there's a better way for us. Maybe it is I hear, and I have to confess, you know, as I'm saying it, I'm convicting myself that, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm talking now beyond my own, uh, my own practice. I'm struggling with this just like everybody else is, you know, maybe it's time for us to recapture the dignity of being a, a flesh and blood person engaged with another flesh and blood person and give that person my attention. Yeah, although, I mean, that's such a radically countercultural act right now. And that's and that's why the, the book is called The Radical Pursuit of Rest. It's really not arguing for rest by radical means. You know, I'm not telling people to go off and live in a cave somewhere or, uh, you know, I'm not saying let's, let's throw out all of our technology, you know, throw out your phone and your computer. And, uh, I mean, we couldn't, your listeners couldn't hear this interview without the benefit of technology. That's, that's the irony of it, right? right but yeah. the, it's, the, it's the very idea of rest that is radical. And so what I'm arguing, I'm arguing for ordinary people in normal contexts to take on this challenge and begin to put rest in uh, first place by seeking first the kingdom of God through seeking the rest that Christ offers as a gift. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. This is not just an invitation to an experience. It's an invitation to Christ himself. Well, if there is one deadly sin most Americans imagine themselves to be free of, it is sloth. But you argue that sloth is is something other than just laziness, that it goes into areas that feel sacrosanct to our cultural consciousness. What is sloth as you see it? Uh, This is one of the things that was startling to me, you know, as as I was uh, reflecting on the issues in the book. Because, you know, first of all, when I think about sloth, I I think I call it uh, rest's dysfunctional relative. In fact, Sloth is, you know, sloth is very different from rest. For one thing, it it has a complete um, opposite effect that rest does. It differs pretty much in every respect. Rest refreshes. Sloth drains vitality, depletes energy. Rest, rest is a remedy. Sloth injures us. Uh, and what you find in Scripture with sloth is that sloth is often conjoined with other sins in Scripture. It's a wonderful quote by Dorothy Sayers that it describes what sloth is like. She says, It is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there's nothing that it would die for. We, uh, you know, really, I think Sloth in our culture is, uh, you know, it's synonymous with this culture of extreme uh, acceptance. You know, where we don't we we don't really want to criticize anybody. We're not going to judge anybody. We're going to accept everybody. Um, the Hebrew word for sloth conveys the idea of laxness or slackness. And essentially, sloth is a sin of omission. Sloth is a failure to do what we should do. It's a failure to do what's required or right or good. So, for example, when Israel is on the border of the land of promise and it balks because there are giants there, because it, it doesn't, they don't have confidence in God's power, their refusal to, to go in is an exercise in sloth. But then after they're told that they're going to remain in the wilderness, that God's going to send them into the wilderness as a discipline, then they, and then they balk at that, and they decide to rush in and try to take the land on their own strength. That's an exercise in sloth, too. So that, you know, so that sloth often is manifest not just in this sort of, you know, lazing about and you know, eating bonbons and watching soap operas, you know, that's, that, that might be perhaps a form of sloth, but this sort of busy distractedness that keeps me from doing what I'm supposed to be doing, that's also a mode of sloth. So one of the things that happens to me when I'm, when I'm working on, say, I'm trying to write something or I'm doing some work that uh, it's hard for me to do, often because it's tedious, you know, but it's something that I have to do. It's a responsibility. And, you know, and I feel distracted, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to check what's on Facebook. And next thing you know, I've whittled away in a half hour, maybe an hour looking at people's pictures of awesome hamburgers that they're eating and I realized, oh, I, I haven't done what I'm supposed to be doing. Th- that is a perfect picture of the way that sloth manifests itself in everyday life. I actually think that a lot of the, the rhetoric we use in ministry, where we're talking about vision and we're we're trying to, uh, uh, you know, we're trying to do something remarkable, sometimes is an, is actually an exercise in sloth because we are. We are really not interested in the ordinary, you know, nuts and bolts, day-to-day uh, uh, necessity of living for Christ, that it becomes a kind of distraction that can actually keep us from doing what we ought to be doing. I had a, when, I, when I was actually writing this chapter, I had, you know, all my books are really a form of 
self-therapy. So, sure. you know, sure. I, I'm, I'm usually working through issues. And one of the issues I was working through is I had, I had grown discouraged both in my writing ministry and my um, preaching ministry, largely because I wasn't experiencing the kind of success that I you know, felt that I wanted to have. And so I had come to the place where I pretty much decided, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to write anymore. I'm not going to preach anymore. I'm, I'm kind of done with that. And um, so I was writing this chapter on sloth, and I'm thinking, I've realized, you know, I, I think that that, what I, that decision I made was actually an exercise in sloth. And uh, so, I, so I, I paused, and I said, Lord, am I being slothful in not doing these things because uh, I'm not experiencing, because I'm mad, I'm mad at you, basically, because you're not giving me the success I want. And, you know, I, I really, I really felt convinced that that was a form of sloth. And then like within literally within about 10 minutes, I got, I, all of a sudden I got several invitations to speak and I just, you know, I felt that was the Lord sort of saying, yeah, you're, go ahead. (laughs) Anyways. You know, medieval Christians talk about sloth, uh, despair as a type of sloth. That just yes. kind of giving up. In fact, that's what um, uh, you know. Dorothy Sayers says the same thing. In fact, there's a, I'm, and I'm not going to be able to um, find it, but there's a wonderful description of sloth by one of the, uh, you know, one of the um, monastic fathers who who they they called it the noonday demon. And there's a there's this really really vivid description of this monk who, you know, who Basically, it's sort of like you're in the middle of the day, and you're kind of bored, you know. So, so the monk kind of goes out of his, you know, out of the cave or the cell, and you know he's looking around. He's looking for somebody to come. It's it's that sense of distractedness where what you have in front of you is so to do is so sort of mundane. It's so common that you easily lose interest in it and you're looking for something else, you know, something else to occupy you and, and you get, actually you get agitated, you get fidgety and uh, instead of attending to what's right in front of you, you, you begin to a, a neglect your responsibility and try to find something else that's more, uh, more interesting well, I'll admit that the chapter I most needed to read, and thus the chapter I least enjoyed reading, um, was the chapter on ambition. Yeah. You say that for Christians, ambition's not exactly bad, but that virtuous ambition looks really different from the ambition that comes more naturally to us. So, how can we be ambitious but not sinful? Well, um, I'm not sure. I, I'm just going to say... I'm not sure it's possible to be ambition without, ambitious without being sinful. I, mean, I think that, you know, I, I think that everything I do is shot through with um, this undercurrent of self-centeredness. And that doesn't mean that I can't be ambitious for Christ, but I, I, but I think I have, to, I have to have my eyes open and recognize that there's always, there's always an element of self-interest in what I'm trying to do. I don't, I don't think I've ever had a really pure motive in my service for Christ. So, or, or anything else, you know, so right. that, um, I, I think the, I, I, so I think ambition's always a problem. I mean, you see that, you see that with the disciples who on, it's not just once they have this conversation about who's going to be greatest amongst them. According to the Gospels, they had it several times. They have, they have several arguments amongst themselves. Where, and they're not, they're, the, the argument isn't, you know, John says to Peter, you know, Peter, I think you're the greatest. And Peter says, no, John, you're the greatest. And the, the argument is that each of them is debating because they think that they ought to be given the highest regard. And it's not just... They're not just looking ahead in eternity to say, you know, who's going to, who's going to sit on the right hand or the left hand of Jesus. 
they mean right now, you know, as they're as they're walking with Christ right then and there. So that it's very common for us to wrestle with it. What exacerbates it for us today is this mentality that you know that that everybody can be a star that that everybody should have their 15 minutes of fame i you know i and it's not lost on me that you know that i'm talking to you about this while i'm hawking my book right i want people to <laughs> to read my book so i i mean i understand there's you know there's an element of hypocrisy in just in saying it but a few months a while back i heard a radio advertisement for a christian school that was promoting uh, it, one of its programs in radio and television, and the tagline for the commercial was "Be famous for God." And I had two immediate reactions. One was my first reaction was repulsion. You know, it's like, oh, that's you know, that is just so upfront, ambitious. It's gross. And then the next immediate re- reaction was, well, hey, I'm a writer. I could be famous for God. How come I'm not famous for God? Right. You know, we right. many of us are. A whole generation whose parents and well-meaning parents and teachers have told us our whole lives, you know, you can be anything that you want to be, and therefore we should be, you know, we think that we should be somebody. So, so how do we process that? I think I think most of us, uh, particularly in you know, particularly when it comes to ministry, quite frankly, struggle with balancing this sense of rest, this sense of trusting that, um, you know, Christ is going to work out his good purpose in our lives in his own way with this sense of ambition. I, I found that this was true when I was a pastor. I think it's, you know, it's still true now that I'm a teacher that combined with the legitimate desire that I have to serve Christ in my ministry, I also have this drive to advance my own ministry or advance my own purposes. You know, I want, you know, I want to be somebody. I want, you know, I want people, I want my book to go viral. Right, Uh, right. And when that doesn't happen, I, I, first of all, I'm a little irritated. You know, I wonder, okay, God, you let that person's book do that. That guy's church is bigger than mine. You know, that professor is more popular than I am. How come you're not doing that for me? In fact, there's a sense of entitlement there. Jesus shows a very different, uh, uh, a disturbingly different uh, attitude. You know, Jesus is not really, God in general is not, as far as I can see, he's really not that interested in uh, the things that really drive us in terms of the way we measure success. I don't think he's that interested in numbers, quite frankly. He's not, he doesn't seem to be that interested in effectiveness. You know, we often use the rhetoric of effectiveness when we're talking about why we do things in ministry. I, I don't think God cares about effectiveness. I know that'll, that might disturb some people to hear it, but honestly, look at the people that he's committed his his uh the mission of the church to he's committed it to us we're not very effective we're not very good at it right and when we are we tend to screw it up you know yeah i mean look at his, look at the look at the people he chose for his disciples and if you if you look at his training his training mode for his disciples you know it's primarily learning through failure he sends them out they make a mistake then they come back and he debriefs them on the mistake and it's so God has this really, uh, uh, you know, strange set of values where, where he is the way the Bible describes it. You know, he's uh, he's exalting the lowly, and he's you know he's pulling down those that are high. He uses those who are without wisdom in order to promote his own wisdom. You know, he, he just has a very inverted sense of uh, values, so that I, I think there is a place for ambition in the Christian life. That, and I think that ambition is it's normal to us. It's really just a mode of desire, and uh, you know, desire is part of the way that we're wired. 
so there are a lot of contexts where you can see ambition as uh, you know as a as a normal experience. So when it fuels our efforts on the athletic field, for example, and I think even in business or in the arts, you know, it can provide energy. It can expand the scope of our success. I think that it also has a place in the spiritual life. First Corinthians twelve thirty one tells us to desire the greater gifts. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, that anybody who sets his heart on uh, the office of overseer desires a noble task. But it is easily perverted, as you, know, as you can see, when uh, you can see that in the disciples. And, and I think that we, that's why we really can't trust it, particularly when it comes into um, this sort of self-aggrandizing when it becomes the same kind of ambition that drives us, say, in the, um, you know, in the corporate realm, when ministry becomes a kind of a career path for us, you know, then it becomes a problem. And the good news is that God really is good at undercutting that in our lives. He really knows how to do that for us. You know, he knows how to derail those ambitions for us the daily humiliations of everyday life right right yeah yeah you know and um i think what we have to do is you know we do have to become sensitive to those uh, inner signals that we experience that tell us that we've crossed the line you know, for example, I, one of the things that I say about ambition is that it likes to keep company with pride and envy, so that when you when you notice pride working in your life, for example, pride is happiest when it's provoking envy in others. Pride uses envy. Envy is the way that I feel when I think that I've been bested. You know, so I can't be satisfied with somebody else's success. I can't rejoice. You know, the Bible tells me to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, honestly, I think what we often experience is we weep over those who rejoice and we rejoice with those who weep, you know, particularly if they're, uh, we feel that they're in competition to us. When I start to feel these, uh, see these things coming to the surface, it's a, it's a clue to me that I have crossed a line and I'm really doing something more than um, I'm really doing something more than seeking God's interests. And I, I also think we have to be sensitive to the kind of um, I talked about this earlier. You know, the sort of uh, spiritual capitalism that is driving church ministry today. You know, more and more often when people, when church leaders talk to me, I'm telling them. You know, you need to forget about the numbers. You, you need to be less worried about how successful your church is and give more attention to the care of souls because that's what God cares about. He doesn't really care about the numbers because he, he's in control of the numbers. So uh, I think what I end up doing is when I misplace my values and I end up focusing my attention on the wrong things and therefore I start using people instead of caring for people you know I, I lose sight of the care of souls in the life of church and I then I be, as a church leader I really become a master of programs I'm not even really dealing with people I'm trying to create these elegant structures well, I'm afraid we're running out of time um, I've been steering this conversation so far, but on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to give our guests the final word. What haven't we talked about so far that you'd like our listeners to know? Um, well, you know, I, I, I think the chapter that, uh, the, the topic that was the one that affected me the most was the last chapter, the chapter on final rest. And, um, and, I, and partly I think that's because it speaks to a core issue in my own life. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and it, it, you know, it really triggered, um, 
a core fear that has always been true for me, which is the the fear of death. And uh, I I realized how much my life has been shaped by that. And so it was a it was a blessing in disguise in many respects because it it forced me, first of all, to uh, confront the reality of my fear when it comes to death and uh, wrestle with that, with God. And then it was a forcible reminder that that's really my ultimate hope as a follower of Christ, that the bulk of my life, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of my life is going to be spent in eternity. It's not, it's really not this little space that I call this, you know, my life right now. In fact, most of what we talk about when we're planning for the future is really just the, you know, the near future, not the ultimate future, uh, the, the future of eternity. And that's really the most important future in God's value system. So, um, and that's really where the promise of rest bears its ultimate fruit, because it is the rest that the writer of Hebrews promises, the, the ultimate rest that Christ alone provides for us. Well, our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles has been John Kessler, whose book, The Radical Pursuit of Rest, Escaping the Productivity Trap, is available now from InterVarsity Press. We have a link to buy that on the show's episode notes at our website, christianhumanist.org. Thanks again for coming on the show, John. My pleasure, Michael. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.